Hello and welcome to the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger for Monday, January 8th, 2024. I'm your reader, Mary Francis. Um, as you know, there's a big storm predicted tonight and tomorrow for a good portion of Iowa, so keep your ears on your local weather station of choice to stay on top of the storm. I have, hope everyone stays safe. The front page of the Mason City Globe Gazette, actually the whole paper, has exactly zero local news in it today. So I am going to go back to Sunday's Mason City Globe Gazette. Um, the majority of the front page is taken up with a photo of former President Donald Trump standing before a crowd of supporters in Mason City on Friday. And the big, big headline is, quote, this is the last chance to save America, Trump in Mason City. This is from Alexander Schmidt of the Globe Gazette. Former President Donald J. Trump made a campaign stop in Mason City on Friday night, just 10 days before the first votes are cast in the 2024 Iowa caucuses. Quote, we'd better win this damn election or this country is finished, Trump told a cheering crowd of about 800 people in North Iowa, at the North Iowa Events Center. This is the greatest movement of all time, Trump said. We love Iowa, and on January 15, you will help us deliver a victory like we've never seen before. In your heart, Trump told the crowd, you know I'm the only one who will put America first. January 15 will be the third time Thomas Swanson, age 28, of Forest City, will vote for Trump in the Iowa caucuses, but it was the first time he's seen the former president speak. Swanson said he was most looking forward to hearing Trump take the fight directly to President Joe Biden and what he sees as a failed administration. Quote, it's a disaster the way our country is being run, he said. Our country is on the verge of collapse. The majority of Trump's remarks were centered on Biden, who he described as, quote, the worst, most corrupt, most incompetent president in history and a really bad guy, unquote. Trump mocked Biden at one point, saying, quote, he can't even find his way off the stage after a three-minute speech because after about three minutes, the medicine wears off before offering up his imitation of Biden wandering around the stage. Quote, I know Trump can better our country, Swanson added, because he did it before and he will do it again. When he's back in there, he'll be an advocate for pro-life policies, social security, and a secure border. Immigration and the border were also at the top of mind for voter Dean Avery of Missouri, who said, quote, eight million illegals is the issue that decided his vote for Trump. Trump said if elected again to the presidency, he will expand his first term policies to begin, quote, the largest domestic deportation in U.S. history. His plans include rounding up undocumented immigrants already in the U.S., placing them in detention camps to await deportation. Trump's first administration implemented policies that prevented people from applying for asylum at the southern border and separated children from their families. He said his administration completed construction of 531 miles of border wall, some of it in environmentally sensitive areas. He said he was going to do it and he got it done, Avery said. I can't wait for him to get back in there and get this country straightened back out again. As for the misguided military in the last three years, the Afghanistan withdrawal was totally assed up. Thirteen people killed for no reason. Military equipment left there. Not a good thing at all for our country. The former president deviated from his scripted remarks to make 
light of his legal troubles, saying at one point, I've got more indictments than Al Capone, and joking, if my big beautiful plane flies over a blue state, the next day I'll get a subpoena. Trump's spring campaign event schedule may be interrupted by periodic court appearances. He's currently under indictment in state and federal courts for 91 felony counts, with some trials scheduled to begin as early as March. Trump argued if he had been reelected in 2020, quote, all those people dead in Ukraine would never have happened. Those people dead in Israel would never have happened. Israel would never have been attacked. Ukraine would never have been attacked. We wouldn't have inflation. China would not be looking to Taiwan and thirsting, drooling to attack. Julie Billings was just reelected to a second term as Cerro Gordy County GOP chair. Though she does not endorse any candidate in her official capacity as chair, Billings personally plans to caucus for Trump, whom she has supported since his 2016 campaign. She's attended dozens of his rallies. Billings said Trump has her support because, quote, he secured our border, we were economically sound, and he protected our rights. Billings looks forward to a record showing for Republicans at all 11 Cerro Gordo County caucus locations. Quote, the message is how important it is that we get out and caucus. The people decide. We've got to show out in huge numbers and show the world. We need to get back to the Constitution, the grassroots, the founding fathers, and what this country was built on that made it so great, she said. This is the last chance, Trump said, of the 2024 election to save America from Joe Biden's banana republic. The Iowa Republican caucuses will take place at 7 p.m. January 15th. Another story from the front page of Sunday's Globe Gazette, Fox stages town halls days before caucuses. And it shows a photo of the two anchors, Martha McCollum and Brett Baer, um, seated next to each other during the first Republican presidential primary debate in August. This is from the Des Moines Bureau of the Globe Gazette. A trio of Fox News town halls with presidential candidates in Des Moines next week will dig into the issues that are motivating America's voters for the 2024 election, especially when it comes to women. Fox News's Martha McCollum said in an interview with Lee Enterprises. The network will host town hall events with Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, and Nikki Haley. Just day before, Iowa Republicans head to the caucuses and kick off the presidential nominating process. The town halls will be moderated by McCollum, executive editor and anchor of The Story, and Brett Baer, chief political anchor for Special Report. The Haley Town Hall will take place at 5 p.m. January 8th, that's tonight, the DeSantis Town Hall, January 9th at 5 p.m., and the Trump Town Hall, January 10th at 8 p.m. The Trump Town Hall will take place at the same time as CNN's scheduled debate between DeSantis and Haley, also in Des Moines. The DeSantis and Haley Town Halls are billed by Fox News as being focused on, quote, women's issues. McCollum said the Town Halls will broadly cover the issues that women, especially suburban women, care about. She said suburban women have been a decisive voting population in the past elections and how they vote in 2024 will be a key factor in the outcome. For most people, issues are issues, whether you're a man or a woman, she said, and a lot of these issues go across the board. But because it's such an interesting group to watch on election night, I hope that within these town halls, 
we're going to get a sense from the women in the room about where they are on all of this. The town halls will be held in front of a live audience. Much of the time is planned to be dedicated to questions from the audience. The network will select from questions the audience submits to present to the candidates, McCollum said. The issues McCollum said she expects to cover in the town halls include uh, the economy, border, crime, and abortion. DeSantis, Haley, and Trump have participated in a number of town halls and televised media events throughout the caucus campaign held by major cable news networks. CNN held back-to-back -back town halls with DeSantis and Haley on Thursday. What's different this time, McCollum said, is the level of attention voters are paying to the presidential primary, with just a few days left until the caucuses. I think the difference now is that we're so close, McCollum said, and that people have had opportunities to listen to these candidates. I think also all of them are sharpening their games in the recent weeks, which I think is very interesting to watch. Bayer occasionally clashed with, clashed with Trump in a June interview when the former president defended withholding classified documents after leaving the presidency and repeated unfounded claims of fraud in the 2020 election. McCollum said she hopes the town hall does not, quote, get too eaten up by Trump's false election claims or multiple criminal indictments. She said Republican voters generally are less interested in those issues compared to issues like the economy and the border. Quote, I'm sure we'll touch on some of those issues, but I hope that we spend the majority of the time talking about the things that we know voters care about the most, she said. Now I'm going to go back as far as Saturday's Globe Gazette, um, just trying to get as much local news to you as possible. Cover story, Healthy Trails, shows a photo of three people, a man and two women, standing on a trail. Mike Dunn, Bridget Exman, and Emily Bruins, returning from a short New Year's Day ruck on the Shell Rock Greenbelt Trail near Nora Springs. And the headline here is, New North Iowa Rucks Club Embraces Year-Round Fitness. New Year's Day temperatures were in the low 20s, and there was little sun to warm the body. But that didn't slow down North Iowa Rucks members Bridget Exman, Mike Dunn, and Emily Grooms. The trio are part of a new outdoor club focused on rucking. Rucking, that's R-U-C-K-I-N-G, is a sport similar to backpacking or hiking, but participants carry added weight. Both Bruins and Dunn are experienced backpackers. When you're backpacking, at least the pack gets lighter as you go, said Bruins. When it comes to the fitness aspect of rucking, recommendations are to start with 10% of your body weight added to your pack. 20% of your body weight will provide a satisfying workout, according to X-Men. Dunn and X-Men are engaged to be married, and Dunn says he took an interest in rucking through X-Men's enthusiasm. I enjoy the outdoors. I've done plenty of backpacking. I got into it in part because of Bridget, he said. X-Men carries a specially designed flat rucksack that holds a 30-pound weight. It's ergonomic rather, and comfortable to wear on treks of any length. Rucking is just hiking with added weight, he said. This is our second venture, and at the first we had 12 or so people. Some folks brought a pack without any weight for the first run. Rucking is a year-round sport, and it may attract new followers this year, as snowfall has been limited. Lime Creek Nature Center is a popular destination for snowshoers and cross-country skiers, 
who now may be looking for an alternate winter activity. Those trails are open even if they don't have snow on them, said Conservation Education Director Heather Hucka, that's H-U-C-K-A, of Lime Creek. We're seeing lots of hikers and dog walkers. When the snow doesn't fly, people have to rely on their year-round activities to be active in nature. Brune said the club offers a social aspect as well. It's good to have accountability and motivation from your peers. Clubs like this offer what experts call a third space. We all have home lives and work lives, but these social clubs give us time to be outside of those things. Xman said, rucking is a simple activity, but doesn't require specialized equipment or knowledge. On our first trip, we had people with backpacks and sacks of flour or sugar as weight. Excursions are typically either timed or measured by distance. Participants set out and turn back at a specified time or location. Bruins said, People naturally group together based on pace, making the trips enjoyable and friendly. It's a low carb, or excuse me, it's a low impact cardiovascular workout. North Iowa has abundant trails and outdoor spaces, and we're planning to take advantage of that, said X-Men. North Iowa Rucks is the name of the club, and they have a Facebook page with more information. Next story is from the front page of Saturday's Globe Gazette. Perry school shooting leaves community shaken. A day after a shooting sent bullets flying inside a small town Iowa school, leaving 11-year-old Amir Jolliffe dead and five others wounded, the community of Perry is somber. Yellow crime tape still lined the campus that Perry High School shares with the town's middle school on the east edge of town. Flowers and stuffed toys have cropped up in many memorials and classes across the district were canceled Friday in favor of counseling. On Thursday, authorities said the 17-year-old Dylan Butler opened fire at the school just after 7.30 a.m., forcing people to hunker down in classrooms and offices shortly before classes were set to begin on the first day back after winter break. According to a statement from the Iowa Department of Public Safety, Butler died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. An administrator later identified by his alma mater as Perry High School principal Dan Marburger was among those wounded. In a Facebook post later in the day, Marburger's daughter said he was in surgery all day and is currently stable. Claire Marburger called her father a gentle giant who would want more attention on the other victims and their families and less on himself. Two friends and their mother who spoke with the Associated Press, said Butler was a quiet person who had been bullied for years. Authorities said Butler had a pump-action shotgun and a small-caliber handgun. Mitch Mortvitt, the State Investigation Division's Assistant Director, said during a news conference that authorities also found a pretty rudimentary improvised explosive device and rendered it safe. A law enforcement official briefed on the investigation, said federal and state investigators were interviewing Butler's friends and analyzing Butler's social media profiles, including posts on TikTok and Reddit. Shortly before Thursday's shooting, Butler posted a photo on TikTok inside the bathroom of Perry High School, the official said. The photo was captioned, Now We Wait, and the song Stray Bullet by the German band KMFDM accompanied it. Investigators also found other photos Butler posted 
posing with firearms, according to the official, who was not authorized to publicly discuss details of the investigation and spoke to the AP on condition of anonymity. Sister Yesenia Roeder and Kamya Hall, both age 17, said alongside their mother, Alita, that Butler was bullied relentlessly since elementary school, but it escalated recently when his younger sister started getting picked on too. Quote, he was hurting. He got tired. He got tired of the bullying. He got tired of the harassment, Yesenia Roeder Hall said. Was it a smart idea to shoot up the school? No, God no, unquote. Calls to Perry's Community Schools Superintendent Clark Wicks, as well as school board members, were unanswered Thursday, and an email request for comment was not immediately returned. Police arrived within minutes after an active shooter was reported at 7.37 a.m. Thursday, authorities said. Perry High School senior Ava Augustus was awaiting a counselor in a school office when she heard three shots. Unable to flee through a small window, she and others barricaded the door and were ready to throw things if necessary. Quote, and then we hear he's down. You can go out, Augustus said through tears. And I run and you can just see glass everywhere, blood on the floor. I get to my car and they're taking a girl out of the auditorium who's, who had been shot in the leg. Three gunshot victims were treated at Iowa Methodist Medical Center in Des Moines, a spokesperson said. Others were taken to a second hospital a spokesman for Mercy One Des Moines Medical Center confirmed. Mortfitt said one person was in critical condition, but the injuries did not appear to be life-threatening, and the others were stable. On Thursday night, hundreds of people gathered for a candlelight prayer vigil at a park, where hours earlier, students had been brought to reunite with their families after the shooting. Bundled up against freezing temperatures, they listened to clergy from many faiths and heard a message of hope in both English and Spanish. Quote, this senseless tragedy has shaken our entire state to its core, said Governor Kim Reynolds. In Washington, President Joe Biden and U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland were briefed on the shooting. Perry has about 8,000 residents. It's about 40 miles northwest of Des Moines on the edge of the state capital's metropolitan area. It's home to a large pork processing plant and the low-slung, single-story homes spread among trees that were now shorn of their leaves by winter. The high school is part of the 1,785-student Perry Community School District. Perry is more diverse than Iowa as a whole. Census figures show that 31% of its residents are Hispanic, compared with less than 7% statewide. Those figures also show nearly 19% of the town's residents were born outside of the U.S. Mass shootings across the U.S. have long brought calls for stricter gun laws from gun safety advocates, and Thursdays did within hours. But the idea has been a non-starter for many Republicans, particularly in rural GOP-leaning states like Iowa, which will hold its first-in-the-nation presidential caucus January 15. As of July 2021, Iowa does not require a permit to purchase a handgun or carry a firearm in public, but it does mandate a background check for anyone buying a handgun without a permit. Xander Shelley, age 15, was in a hallway when he heard shots and dashed into a classroom, according to his father. Uh, his father is Kevin Shelley. 
Xander was grazed twice and hid in the classroom before texting his father. Kevin Shelley, a sanitation worker, told his boss he had to run. It was the most scared I've ever been in my entire life, he said. He later posted a photo of, on Facebook of his son being treated at Methodist Medical Center and said the boy was feeling fine. I'm still shaking, he added, and though I don't show it, I am not okay, unquote. Our next story, changes to Mason City recycling program have begun, and it shows a photo of recycling box sitting on the curb. Mason City residents have seen some changes in the way the sanitation department is managing the city's recycling program. The sanitation department will pick up recyclables on the same schedule as before. Your blue recycling box will go out on the day of garbage pickup. Sanitation trucks and workers will pick up garbage and a recycling truck and workers will pick up recyclables. The city has partnered with Absolute Waste, which has constructed a new facility near the airport to bale recyclables for transport to other locations. Sanitation workers recommend breaking down cardboard and tying it with twine, but prefer that newspapers and other mixed paper be kept in a paper bag for collection. All other recyclables can be placed mixed into the blue bin. Plastic recyclables can be tricky, but there are some tips from the city to help you prepare for pickup. Only yogurt and margarine containers are being accepted when it comes to plastic tubs. Do not place lids in the bin. Lids go into the regular garbage. Screw top plastics can all be recycled, including their caps. To save space in your bin, crush the bottles and replace the lids while crushed to keep their smaller form. Paper food cartons are accepted, but cartons with screw top lids, such as almond milk and soy milk, must have the caps put in the regular garbage. Okay, so plastic bottles, you can keep the cap on. Cardboard bottles or paper bottles, you have to take the cap off. Do not recycle pizza boxes or other food-stained corrugated cardboard, such as clamshell containers. Please dispose of greasy cardboard in the regular trash because that cannot be recycled. Other items that cannot be placed in the recycling bin include plastic bags, plastic and styrofoam food containers, paper drink cups such as those you get at Starbucks, plastic tubs other than yogurt and margarine, and any containers for hazardous materials. Empty aerosol cans can be recycled provided that they have been completely emptied. Household batteries can be recycled at the Mason City Fire Department. The Mason City Sanitation Department reminds residents to keep their garbage can and recycling boxes on the curb so workers can easily access them. Quote, if we can't see, if we can't see your can or box because it's behind a parked car or hidden from sight, we're less likely to pick it up, said Scott Bratrude, sanitation supervisor. Garbage pickup has stayed the same, allowing for 33-gallon garbage cans or two bags that weigh no more than 50 pounds. For residents with extra garbage to throw out, landfill disposal stickers are sold at area grocery stores. Each sheet contains five stickers that can be placed on an extra bag of garbage for pickup. The Mason City website offers graphics and 
frequently asked questions regarding the city sanitation efforts. An insert was also sent out to residents with city water and sanitation service in their monthly bill. For questions regarding recycling, garbage, or yard waste, you can call the sanitation department at 641-421-3691. And here's another story from Saturday's Globe Gazette. Um, as a reminder, there's no local news in today's Globe Gazette and barely any from Sunday. So I'm just going through and finding all the local articles you might have missed. Iowa's recount laws need urgent update, top elections officials say. Secretary of State Paul Pate implores lawmakers to move quickly to streamline rules. By a scant six votes out of more than 394,400 cast, Marionette Miller-Meeks was elected to Congress um, from Iowa in 2020. The recount procedures that certified the historically narrow election revealed some inconsistencies and inefficiencies in Iowa's recount laws, election officials found. Iowa Secretary of State Paul Pate, the state's top elections official, said Wednesday that he is imploring state lawmakers to use the upcoming legislative session to streamline and strengthen the state's recount laws. The 2024 session of the Iowa legislature begins Monday at the Iowa Capitol in Des Moines. In a Wednesday interview, Pate spoke with urgency in describing the need for updating election recount procedures. He said elections officials across the state are already preparing for the 2024 general election season. Iowa's primary election is June 4, and the general election November 5. And if any election laws are going to be changed, those officials would appreciate knowing that sooner than later. Quote, my conversations with legislative leadership have been, we have to have the conversation. They'll need this, they'll need to have this done. And it needs to be done soon, because the filings for candidates starts February 26, Pate said. So we want to make sure that we're getting those things ironed out and done. State lawmakers during the 2023 session considered legislation that would have addressed the issues Pate would like to see addressed, but lawmakers ultimately put the bill on hold and left the Capitol without passing it, pledging to return to the issue in 2024. Quote, it's so important to assure the details are there, and we get to that point of being able to say, yep, Iowa got it right again, and that makes the voters much more confident, Pate said. Pate said his office is proposing a bill very similar to the one briefly considered last year. Under that proposal, and then here are a number of bullets. First bullet, the deadline to request a recount would be moved from the third day following the canvas of election results to two days after the canvas, and a recount board must convene within six days of the canvas. Next bullet. Recounts would be required to be completed within 17 days of the canvas for presidential election, within 21 days of the election for Congress or state office, and within 13 days of any other election. A recount request would be required to include all precincts in a county. The request must state whether a machine recount is requested or a machine and hand recount. Any request for a hand recount must include all counties in a district. More populous counties would be 
given the ability to add more workers to its recount board, which oversees the process. Under current law, each county, regardless of its size, can have only three recount board members. The 2020 recount. Many of those proposed changes to state elections law were inspired by the recount process in the 2020 congressional election in Eastern Iowa's 2nd District. That recount spanned 24 counties, with counties conducting some of the recount operations differently than others, including the use of hand versus machine ballot counts. Quote, we saw the need to improve that recount process, Pate said, so we spent a lot of time listening to voters, listening to county auditors, listening to poll workers, our, and our own staff, taking a look at it to make sure that we improve that process so that everything is much cleaner and clearer and much more consistent. So if you're going to start counting a ballot or a race, it's done the same way all the way through, unquote. Pate said his proposed legislation also will focus on new funding for election staff and more training for Iowans who volunteer to work at poll sites on election day. Here's another one from uh, Saturday's Globe Gazette. Opponents speak out against Iowa school library book ban law. Uh, Dateline Des Moines. A handful of Iowans expressed their opposition to a state law and its proposed administrative rules that prohibits books with descriptions of sex acts and instruction on gender identity in elementary schools during a public hearing on Wednesday. Republican Governor Kim Reynolds signed the law, uh, Senate File 496. She signed it last year, and the law bans books with descriptions or visual depictions of any of a defined list of sex acts from school libraries. It also prohibits any instruction or curriculum on gender identity or sexual orientation from schools before seventh grade and requires school districts to notify a student's parent if the student requests to change their name or pronouns in order to affirm their gender identity, among other provisions. Penalties for the law were set to take effect on January 1, but a federal judge temporarily blocked the most controversial programs last week after multiple groups sued state officials over the law. Commenters on Wednesday said the rules did not go far enough in clarifying the intent of the legislation and would soon, or would lead rather, to far too many books being removed from school library shelves. Iowans had another opportunity to comment on the proposed rules on Thursday. In his order blocking the law until the litigation is settled, U.S. District Court uh, Judge Stephen Locker called the mandates wildly overbroad. Quote, the sweeping restrictions in Senate File 496 are unlikely to satisfy the First Amendment under any standard of scrutiny and thus may not be enforced while the case is pending, Walker wrote in the ruling. Reynolds and Attorney General Brenna Byrd said last week that they were disappointed in the ruling and vowed to continue defending the law. Quote, instruction on gender identity and sexual orientation has no place in kindergarten through sixth grade classrooms, Reynolds said, and there should be no question that books containing sexually explicit content as clearly defined in Iowa law do not belong in a school library for children. What do the rules say? Thomas Mays, Department of Education's General Counsel, noted the injunction during Wednesday's public hearing and said, quote, 
Any action that the State Board takes in response to this public comment is, of course, bound by any current law." Unquote. Should the law be allowed to take effect, the proposed rules would govern how schools must implement it and how the state would enforce penalties. While the rules are mostly in line with the text of Senate File 496, they clarify that, quote, a reference or mention of a sex act in a way that does not describe or visually depict the act is not prohibited from school libraries. The rules also only apply to a library that has a school or rather that a school has direct control over, and schools with libraries that serve multiple grades must ensure that students only have access to material appropriate for their grades. On the portion prohibiting instruction on gender and sexual orientation, the department stipulated that a, quote, neutral statement regarding sexual orientation or gender, gender identity, unquote, does not violate the rules. The rules state, a school board would receive a written warning on the first violation, and on the second violation, the superintendent and employees of the school could receive disciplinary action. Five people, all opposing the law and the current rules, spoke at the first of two public hearings on the proposed rules on Wednesday. Sarah Hayden Paris, a member of Annie's Foundation, that's a group that opposes library book restrictions, said the rules are, quote, weak and meaningless, and the legislation was, quote, poorly written and discriminatory. She pointed to the judge's injunction on the law as evidence that it violates the First Amendment and said the rules do not go far enough in clarifying what is and is not allowed in school libraries. Quote, even with the proposed rules, the law has a staggeringly broad scope, such that the dictionary and the Iowa Code are likely prohibited books, in Iowa schools, she said, quote, there was no way the board could have successfully provided meaningful clarifications surrounding SF 496, unquote. Republicans have repeatedly defended the law as a measure to remove pornography and graphic sex from school libraries. Republican House Speaker Pat Grassley said in a statement that when the law was challenged in court, Republicans stand behind it, quote, the sexualization of children in schools does not have a place in Iowa, he said. This is a responsible and reasonable law that I believe all Iowans could get behind if the far left and the media would stop playing politics and accurately represent what is actually in the law." Unquote. Margaret Buckton, a lobbyist for the Urban Education Network and Rural School Advocates of Iowa, said at the hearing, the department should add more clarification to the rules to ensure that classic literature does not feature graphic classic literature that does not feature graphic sex is not removed from school library shelves. Buckton said the Sex Act prohibition should be altered to ban quote vivid or pornographic descriptions or graphic depictions of a sex act unquote. She said that would make a clearer distinction between what is and what is not allowed in school libraries. Quote after passage of the legislation, the Education Committee chairs, the leaders of the House and Senate, and the governor have all stated that the legislation was intended to prohibit pornography and obscenity in school libraries. The way the bill is drafted, it prohibits anything that is short of those definitions, or it's vague and we don't know, unquote. 
After the second round of public comments on Thursday, the proposed rules will go before the Legislature's Administrative Rules Review Committee. The committee is set to meet January 8th, the first day of the legislative session, to review the rules. And we're a little past the halfway point of today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger right here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. We are dipping back into previous um, editions of these papers because the Monday paper is really thin and we're just trying to bring you all the local news we could. Here's a story from the Fort Dodge Messenger. Two students threatened WC schools on January 4th. Uh, Dateline Webster City. On the same day that Iowans' attention was fixed on the school shooting in Perry, the Webster City school system was dealing with its own threat of violence. As a result, two Webster City middle school students were referred to juvenile court services and subsequently transported to the Central Iowa Detention Center in Eldora, according to the Webster City Police Chief Shiloh Mork, that's M-O-R-K. They are accused of, quote, delinquent acts of threat of terrorism, Mork said in a media release. Because the pair are juveniles, their identities will not be disclosed. Specific details of the threats that were made will also not be disclosed, he said. Threat of terrorism is a Class D felony in Iowa. Quote, the Webster City Police Department wants to update the community on two instances involving threats of violence made at the Webster City Middle School January 4th, 2024, he said in a news release. It continues, both instances involve a middle school aged student making verbal threats of violence to the school. Staff at the Webster City Middle School alerted the police department to these incidents and cooperated with both police investigations. Both incidents were isolated and unrelated to one another. Neither incident included an immediate threat of violence. Matt Burninghouse, superintendent of the Webster City Community School District, released this statement regarding one of the incidents. Quote, Dear families, I'm writing to update you on an incident that was reported to have occurred at the Webster City Middle School near the end of the day on Thursday, end of the school day rather. Thursday, January 4th, a middle school student was heard making a verbal threat to school safety. Quote, our middle school principals immediately took action to investigate and provide necessary information to our local police department. We've now been informed that the student is likely to face charges as a result of the comments. While this is an isolated incident, we want our families to know that we take the situation very seriously. We are fully cooperating with the police investigation and we're doing everything we can to ensure the safety and security of our entire school community. As always, we encourage everyone to speak up if they see or hear anything that could represent a potential school safety issue. Please don't hesitate to contact me if you have any questions and thank you for your attention to this communication. And that was from the uh, superintendent of the West Webster City Community School District. The Webster City Police Department was assisted by the Webster City Community School District and Juvenile Court Services with the investigation for this story. Another piece from today's Fort Dodge Messenger, police proposal on the table. 
eight more officers would be added to Fort Dodge Police Force, funds would come from a new utility franchise fee. Eight more officers would be added to the Fort Dodge Police Department, thanks to revenue generated by a proposed utility franchise fee. Money generated from that fee would also enable the City Council to lower that portion of the property tax rate that provides money to pay off general obligation bond debt. Additionally, the revenue from the fee would provide funding for the Carl L. King Municipal Band and Citizens Central. However, if approved, the fee would be passed on to electric and gas customers of Mid-American Energy on their monthly bills. But the 1% local option sales tax would no longer be levied on utility bills if the franchise fee goes into effect. The fee would add about $4 a month to residential electric bills and about $3 a month to a residential gas bill, according to figures provided by the city. The proposed franchise fee is estimated to generate $2.4 million annually. The City Council will continue, continue consider rather beginning the process of implementing a franchise fee when it meets tonight. The council meeting, 5 p.m. at the municipal building that's located at 819 First Avenue South with a, with a budget workshop. Business meeting will begin at 6 p.m. During tonight's meeting, the council is expected to pass a couple of preliminary resolutions and schedule a January 22nd public hearing on the franchise fee. The fee will have to be approved by the council on three votes in order to go into effect. What is a franchise fee? The city government has the power to grant individuals and businesses franchises to provide services within the community, according to city manager David Fierke. Mid-American Energy has long held a franchise to provide electric and gas service to the city. Fierke said the city has always had the right to enact franchise fees. He said those fees are essentially rent that the companies pay for the use of public property and rights of way. Mediacom, which has a franchise to provide cable television service, collects a franchise fee from its customers who have that service. The city has not charged Mid-American a franchise fee in the past, although it has had the right to do so. Revenue from a franchise fee can be used for any essential service of the city. There's no other way to add police officers unless you're going to make massive cuts to other things in the general fund, Fierke said. So how much is the franchise fee? Franchise fee would be 5% added to both electric and gas bills. At the same time, the franchise fee is implemented, the 1% local option sales tax would be removed from those bills. The result would be a net increase of $3.68 per month on the average residential electric bill according to figures provided by Fierke. There would also be a net increase of $3.18 per month on average residential gas bills, according to those same calculations. Increasing the 40-member police force has long been a goal of current and past City Council members. A proposal to add eight officers was dropped during the preparation of the 2023-24 budget because there was not enough property tax revenue to pay for it. If the franchise fee is approved, rather, about $800,000 from it 
would be used each year to pay for the additional officers, according to Fierke. With a franchise fee in place, five additional officers would be hired in the fiscal year that begins July 1. Another three would be added in the fiscal year that begins July 1, 2025. Police Chief Dennis Quinn said having those additional officers would enable the department to have more people out on patrol and create a new community action team. He said one officer would be added to each of the four patrol shifts. Those shifts would then have eight people assigned to them, including a lieutenant, a sergeant, and six patrol officers. Having more people on a shift will make it possible to do more proactive policing instead of having officers just go from call to call, Quinn said. He added that more officers on a patrol shift will create the flexibility to do things like having someone concentrate on traffic speed enforcement. The flexibility will also give the patrol officers some time to meet the public. Uh, he said that that could consist of something simple as stopping to chat with some kids playing basketball. We will get some community interaction that isn't possible when going from call to call, he said. Having eight additional officers will also allow the creation of a three-member community action team, which would work in tandem with patrol and investigations to address specific issues and areas, Quinn said. For example, if a lot of burglaries were reported in a neighborhood, team members could spend time in that area. Lastly, the addition of eight officers would allow for the creation of one additional detective position. The property tax levy of the city is divided into different parts and they pay for specific things. One part of that levy is earmarked for paying off general obligation bond debt. Currently, the specific levy is $4.50 per $1,000 of taxable value. Fierke said about one-third of the franchise fee revenue will be used to offset part of that debt service levy. He said the levy would be reduced by a dollar per $1,000 of taxable value. Fierke said some of the franchise fee revenue would be used to sustain the Carl L. King Municipal Band and Citizens Central. Both of those are now supported by their own property tax levies, but those levies will be abolished July 1 as a result of property tax law changes that were approved by Governor Kim Reynolds and the legislature. Fierke added that some franchise fee revenue would be used to help pay for infrastructure projects offsetting the loss of local option sales tax revenue that is now collected on electric and gas bills. And now we'll turn to obituaries from the Fort Dodge area. Don M. Gelhausen, that's G-E-H-L-H-A-U-S-E-N, age 51 of Fort Dodge, passed away Friday, January 5, at the Paula J. Baber Hospice Home after enduring a four-year battle with ALS. Funeral services, Wednesday, January 10, 10.30 a.m. at the St. Olaf Lutheran Church. Burial will follow at the Corpus Christi Cemetery. Visitation, Tuesday, 4 to 7, at the church. Lofsweiler Funeral Home is serving the family. 
Larry Gilliland, age 74, passed away January 7th at Stratford Specialty Care. Services are pending and Gunderson Funeral Home is handling the arrangements. Judy Ewing Hugel, that's H-U-E-G-E-L, age 82, of Fort Dodge, passed away January 6th at the Trinity Regional Medical Center. A private celebration of life service will be held at a later date. Gunderson Funeral Home and Cremation Services are uh, in charge of the arrangements for Judy. Barb Weimer, age 80, of Fort Dodge, passed away Friday, January 5, at the uh, Paula, Paula J. Baber Hospice Home. Funeral services will be Thursday, January 11, at the uh, in the chapel of the Lauferswiler Funeral Home, and they will take place at 10.30 a.m. Burial will follow at the Chapel of Peace Mausoleum at North Lawn Cemetery. The visitation will be Wednesday at the funeral home from 4 to 7. Laura Vanderwell, age 50, of Fort Dodge, passed away Friday, December 29th at St. Luke's Hospital in Sioux City. Funeral services um, today at 2 p.m. at Lauferswiler Funeral Home. Burial will follow at the uh, North Lawn Cemetery. And we have an editorial today in the Fort Dodge Messenger. Flu shots provide potentially life-saving protection. Everyone who is able should get vaccinated. Just about, uh, this is submitted by, it doesn't say. Um, just about everyone who has called in sick at some point saying they had the flu when they were sniffling, sneezing, maybe running a fever, and generally feeling lousy. Just about everyone has called in sick at some point. Those simple symptoms definitely add up to an illness, but the problem is not really the flu. Influenza, as it's properly known, is much, much worse. According to the Iowa Department of Public Health, influenza is caused by viruses that infect the respiratory tract. Influenza and pneumonia are among the top 10 causes of death in the state. Fortunately, there is a way to prevent influenza. A yearly vaccine can protect a person from the deadly disease. Yes, getting a shot hurts. And yes, an influenza vaccine can leave a person with a sore arm for a day or two. But that's a small price to pay for protection against a disease that can make a person very ill or even kill them. Getting an influenza vaccine is more important now because of COVID-19. With yet another respiratory disease on the loose, it just makes sense to be protected. But despite the proven protective powers of a flu shot, not everyone gets one. Public health officials would like to see 90% of those who are able to receive a flu shot actually get one. Flu shots are readily available at doctor's offices, pharmacies, and the Webster County Public Health Department. We encourage everyone to get a flu shot to not only protect themselves, but their family, friends, and coworkers from this preventable disease. And that's all we get for today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and uh, Fort Dodge Messenger for Monday, January 8th. Uh, big storms are brewing out there. We're finally going to get some snow across most portions of Iowa. Keep an ear on your um, local weather.
a source for your local weather to stay updated and stay safe. You are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicap. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of folks with print disabilities. My name is Mary Francis. It's been my pleasure to read for you today. Have a great day. If I could be you, and you could be me, for just one hour. If you could find a way to get inside each other's mind. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. We've all felt left out. And for some, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Walk a mile in my shoes. Put a frog in boiling water and it'll jump right out. But put a frog in cool water and slowly heat it up, that frog will boil. As veterans, we tell ourselves the lie that we can handle anything. We let the water boil. You are not a frog. If you or a veteran you know needs support, don't wait. Reach out. Find resources at va.gov reach. That's va.gov reach. Brought to you by the United States Department of Veterans Affairs and the Ad Council. From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. 
Shortly after modern humans arrived in Europe, the Neanderthals disappeared, and scientists think we had something to do with it. Neanderthals, or their direct ancestors, migrated out of Africa and into the Middle East and Europe around 250,000 years ago. Soon, they were well adapted to the environment. Large eyes helped them see in the longer nights and darker winters. Stout bodies helped them retain heat and handle large prey, and provided space for the large liver and kidneys needed for a diet heavy in protein. Their brains were as big as ours, but spent processing power on their greater visual and motor abilities. This may not have allowed them to develop higher communication or conceptual thinking to match ours, which may have been their downfall. Modern humans arrived on the scene 45,000 years ago, less physically adapted, but more mentally adaptable. We had cooperative hunting methods superior to the Neanderthals, allowing us to outcompete them for food, and perhaps reducing the large herbivore populations that they depended on. We also had superior tools and weapons. When there were conflicts between the groups, as there have been among tribes throughout history, our superior technology probably allowed us to prevail. But we weren't only fighting. There must have been considerable interbreeding, since we can find 1-3% of the Neanderthal genome in modern man. Which means the Neanderthals never completely disappeared. A little bit of them is alive in us today. I'm Scott Tinker. EarthDate is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.